0: With episode eight of Read and Succeed. I'm your host Dave Campbell here on your community radio station on 6.5 FM WFNPLP Louisville. Final part in our four-part series on Hungarian novelist Laszlo Krasnoyorke. Reviewing his 2019 National Book Award winner for translated literature Baron Van Kheim's Homecoming. We tie it all together right after this. Stay tuned. I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!, greetings to all Democracy Now! listeners on Pacifica affiliate Forward Radio 106.5 FM, WFMP-LP in Louisville, Kentucky. This grassroots community radio station relies on volunteer power and your financial support to continue broadcasting the progressive national and homegrown local programming you've come to expect from Forward Radio. At a time when our public airwaves are being gobbled up by corporate interests, here's an open mic dedicated to local voices, civic engagement, and community empowerment. Please go to forwardradio.org and pledge your generous support today. Thank you so much. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Welcome back to Read and Succeed. This is the final episode in a four-episode series, Reading and Reviewing 2019 National Book Award for Translated Literature winner, Hungarian novelist and screenwriter, László Krasná And today we will be covering the text that earned him that specific honor his sizable, darkly satirical valedictorian novel, Baron Venkheim's Homecoming. Translated into English by Czech-Canadian translator, Otley Mosette, for New Directions Publishing Corporation, the same year as the award. If you have been following this series on Read and Succeed, the last three episodes, you'll know that we have been reading and reviewing Mr. horkeys self-identified quadrilogy, his 1985 internationally acclaimed masterpiece, Satan Tango, and his 1989 echo, The Melancholy of Resistance, both adapted into internationally acclaimed film adaptations by Hungarian director, Bay Latar. The 1990 Frantic post communist war and war, and concluding with the final apocalypse that only Krasnohorke himself could deliver in his 2016 Baron Venkheim's Homecoming this episode. As quoted directly from an interview that Mr. Krasnohorke gave to the Paris Review on the eve of his 2019 National Book Award, I've said it a thousand times that I always wanted to write just one book. I wasn't satisfied with the first, that's why I wrote the second. I wasn't satisfied with the second, so I wrote the third, and so on. Now, with Baron, I can close the story. With this novel, I can prove that I really wrote just one book in my life. This is the book, Satan Tango, Melancholy, War and War, and Baron. This is my one book. With this episode of Read and Succeed, we both review Baron Vinkheim's Homecoming, but we also can now review the literary entirety of this quote-unquote one book. To listen to a full biographical and historical canvas of Mr. life and career and our reviews of Satan Tango, The Melancholy of Resistance, and more and more, please visit Succeed.net, follow the links to our social media sites, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to us on YouTube. If you are tuning in on 106.5 FM, WFNPLP, Louisville, in and around downtown, you can listen to Read and Succeed on Forward Radio at 5 p.m. on Wednesdays, 1 p.m. on Thursdays, and 8 a.m. on Fridays, all Eastern Standard Time. You can also download all archived episodes of Read and Succeed via SoundCloud, Cloud, iTunes and Google Play. Please visit Forward Radio for our podcast links, information on the station's broadcast schedule, or to make a donation to Community Radio. Lastly, this series and Read and Succeed would not be what it has been without the incredible content permissions we have received from some of the most prestigious literary organizations in the world to broadcast most, if not all, of Mr. Krasnohorke's very rare English interviews, given only in the last decade as New Directions Publishing has gradually made his works available to an English audience. On behalf of Forward Radio and Read and Succeed, special thanks to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., PEN America in New York City, the Munich, Germany based Goethe Institute branch in Boston, Massachusetts, and for today's episode, the renowned City Lights Booksellers and Publishers in San Francisco, California. Learn more about the Library of Congress at loc.gov. Learn more about PEN America at pen.org. Learn more about the Goethe Institute at goethe.de forward slash en. Learn more about City Lights Booksellers and Publishers at citylights.com. Again, our sincerest thanks. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Baron Bela Vankine was actually a real person. He was a mid-19th century Hungarian politician, descended from Hungary's Magyar aristocracy, who served as the eighth historically recognized prime minister of Hungary, then known as the lands of the Crown of St. Stephen in the Austro-Hungarian Empire from March to October of 1875. Baron Venkheim's ascension to the office of prime minister was itself equally noble, emerging from a coalition of centrist factions in Hungarian parliamentary politics that ruled Hungary under the banner of the Liberal Party from his election in 1875 to the dissolution of Austria-Hungary itself at the conclusion of the First World War in late 1918. Most notable of the Liberal Party's initiatives was the passing of legislation for Jewish political emancipation and the appointment of Hungarian Jews to both houses of the Hungarian parliament, well ahead of many of its Eastern and Western European neighbors, and well in spite of the deeply rooted anti-Semitism in Austria-Hungary at the time that later produced the likes of German soldier, failed painter, and Nazi party leader Adolf Hitler, born in Austria-Hungary 14 years after the real Baron Winkheim was elected. The fictional 21st century Baron Béla Kyme of Laszlo Krasnohorke's 2016 novel Baron Kyme's Homecoming is, however, slightly less noble than his non-fictional counterpart. Our Baron Béla Kyme is Hungarian. He is the scion of an ancient Magyar noble family with distinguished Viennese connections, actually the cousin of the Hungarian prime minister. He is nearing the end of his middle age, 64 years old, and a veiled autobiographical connection with Mr. Krasnohorke himself. He is unspeakably elegant, and he is regarded with the highest esteem in his realm. Our baron is also a Hungarian playboy living in Buenos Aires, Argentina for the last 40 years and racking up so many gambling debts in his dandy expat life, he's decided it's time to quietly move back home to his, vintage Krasnohorke, small, remote, unnamed Hungarian town. The baron, shy, world-weary, anxious, and sexagenarian enough to begin embracing his own mortality, has one goal in mind for his return, to reconnect with his beloved Marika, his teenage sweetheart who rejected him four decades prior, and a symbol of his lost youth all the while being completely oblivious to and completely unprepared for the inevitable physical, mental, and spiritual changes 40 years has wrought on her no different than it has wrought on him. A complete thematic photonegative of his earlier work in Satan Tango and the Melancholy of Resistance, where isolated, communist-era Hungarian hamlets completely separated from the passage of time are wrecked by more current, more sophisticated external actors into a narrative where an isolated, communist-era Hungarian exile completely separated from the passage of time is wrecked by now more current and Sophisticated rural post communist Hungarian town. The Baron is so lost in the 20th century past he still calls for telegrams while surrounded by smartphones, bumbles reserving his own taxi service, and remains mystified by novel concepts such as quote unquote market prices. Deeper still, potentially as a consequence of late middle age or simply more vintage Kresnohorke, the Baron has a relationship with reality that is tenuous at best. His memory is about as non-existent as his wealth, and he suffers from a neurodegenerative disease that makes each passing day more cognitively complicated and underwrites his thoroughly subtle, existential Krasnohorkian melancholy that a Krasnohorkian novel cannot exist without. This is the Baron that is slowly making his way to the town. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. The text itself, like the Baron, is also vintage Krasnohorke, or, excused in the prophetic pun, Krasnohorke taken to apocalyptic levels. Whereas Satan Tango, The Melancholy Resistance, and War and War are approximately 275 pages of postmodern stream-of-consciousness periodless sentences that run on for upwards of eight pages at a time, clauses within clauses full of conditionals studded with conditionals, and explanations that also contain explanations, according to New York University English professor and cultural critic Sukdev Sandhu, Baron Venkheim's Homecoming is at 550 pages, is nearly as long as the other three novels combined, and absorbing most, if not all, of their thematic energies. Although I believe that Baron could not be truly understood and appreciated without reading Satan, Tango, Melancholy, and War, I do agree with the oft-repeated line in popular literary criticism that if you wanted to get the full Kraus experience, then Baron would be your text. The translator for this 2019 National Book Award for Translated Literature is Czech-Canadian professional Atli Mozet, a departure from Krasnohorky's go-to translator, British-Hungarian poet George Zyrtesh, and in what many critics consider to be a nearly word-for-word rendering, a quite wise choice for the text that is rumored to be Krasnohorky's last shot to give an international readership that already mentioned full Krasnohorky experience. George Ziertes is a thoughtful and sensitive poet, and his translations of Satan Tango, Melancholy, and War resonate with deeply poetic tones, and Krasna Jorge's chapter-long sentences become almost symphonic in nature. Otli Muzet is a mechanic. The text is rendered directly from Hungarian to English, and the words in the chapter-long sentences are simply left to speak and work for themselves, which ultimately they do. If Krasnoharke's self-identified goal was to achieve a new type of literary realism in modern letters, based on the way people talk and think versus the way that they write, using his experimental prose style, Mosette's realistic translation brings that art into perfect, almost deadpan literary clarity. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Baron Venkheim's Homecoming opens exactly as Satan Tangle, The Melancholy of Resistance, and War and War opened over the past 40 creative years, with Alarm the sound of angelic church bells amid the top-down Stalinist atheism and Satan tango, the arrival of sinister carnival oddities amid rank-and-file urban banality and melancholy, and a capitalist mugging amid an aging communist-era train station in the late 1990s post-communist crossroads in war and war. In Baron, this alarm comes in the form of the two most indiscriminately powerful forces the early 21st century has unleashed on human history being brought to bear on its helpless targets. A young, late teens, early 20s female and the social media forces she has at her fingertips being used to influence the generations above her. In the case of Baron, this is a reclusive, eccentric Hungarian bryologist scientific nomenclature for a moss specialist, locally known as the Professor, who has left the world of lichens and, of course, LinkedIn in, and a direct quote from the text, behind for life in a homemade shack on the forested edge of the unnamed town to ponder the deeper meanings of existence as an Eastern European Thoreau figure and having his philosophical sacrifice interrupted when his 19-year-old daughter shows up with a television crew demanding back payments for utility costs on the upper-middle-class suburban life the Professor has left behind. Shaken to his deepest, most complex spiritual depths by this disruption, the professor counters with his own modern post-communist method, a flashy new American-made AR-15 that he pulls out and fires indiscriminately, not injuring or killing anyone, but chaotically dispersing his daughter in the media so he can return to his meditations on the more subtle nuances of reality and his thought exercises on purging all of thought from his mind and, hopefully with it, all anxieties and fears. When his next set of modern interruptions... This time a Hungarian motorcycle gang mounted on chromed-up American cruisers shatters his zen. A few rounds from his semi-automatic rifle actually does injure someone, and the professor, seeing the tattoos and chains and leather and baseball bats and knives angrily coming his way, completes the unfinished work within all of Krasnohorky's previously reviewed text in this series and does what the world-wounded Esty and Satan Tango, the mystical Velusca in The Melancholy of Resistance, and the self-destructively creative Korn in War and War were unable to do. He simply embraces reality as it stands directly in front of him and skips down for good, never to be heard from again. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. As the professor is leaving town, Baron Venkheim is arriving, and similar to the theme in Krasno previous works, this small, closed society cannot help but be altered by a new exotic visitor. Unlike Fresno Jorge's previous works, however, where the visitor is the predator and the isolated society of the town, the city, or the collective farm is the prey. In Baron Van Kime's Homecoming, The Town, a Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band collection of bureaucrats, a bumbling mayor, bikers, con men, a Chinese warehouse owner, corrupt cops, a a few drunks, a son of a character from Satan Tango, a library director, a tourist office staff with no tourism, a gas station attendant at a station with no gas, and even a young Jorge Borgoglio, Google it. All conspire to flatter the arriving baron with speeches, parades, and feasts, and special tours, and then proceed to fleece him of his wealth that the local tabloids and gossip channels have failed to tell anyone no longer exists. Only the baron's beloved Maureka, who herself harbors equally timeless memories of the baron and equally benevolent dreams of lost and potentially correctable love, refuses to cooperate with the rest of the city. Baron Venkheim's Homecoming, the actual event, not the book, however, isn't spoiled by the external machinations of the townsfolk against the Baron, but by the cognitive degenerations and distortions that a long, complete, thoroughly lived life have left for the Baron to deal with internally. Even before his arrival, as he sits on a train bound for Hungary, waxing romantically on his ancient homeland, his land of fables, his Austrian rail conductor warns the Baron that little, if anything, of not only the town but also of Hungary, and in a sense the general notion of 20th century Europe itself even remains as the Baron probably remembered it in the mid to late 1970s. Globalism, Capitalism, Refugeeism, European Unionism, Western Cultural, Imperialism, etc. have changed things from the 20th century Eastern European miserable and poor cartoonishly preying on the 20th century Eastern European miserable and poor as seen in Satan Tango, to a 21st century Eastern European system so sinister it produces characters in the novel so evil they remain unnamed and unseen and unspoken of, only sensed as their gloss black state motorcades cause rain to stop falling and beer to freeze in glasses, and seen in the real world in a real late 2015 video of Hungarian officials throwing sandwiches to a group of caged refugees fleeing the Syrian civil war, no different than if they were feeding animals at a zoo. In the end, the conductor rightly prophesied to the baron as they reached their destination, everything is going to go up in flames here. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. The Baron's mind, from after recovering from the shock of the grandiose greetings, speeches, and band music delivered by the scheming townsfolk as he steps off his train, simply cannot process the changes that have occurred in the town since he left, to the point where he starts to believe that the town he left behind in his youth was cataclysmically destroyed and replaced with a doppelganger of sorts. Nothing remained from the world that had been here. These were not the same train stations, main roads, hospitals, castles, or chateaux. They just happened to stand exactly the same spot where the old ones used to be. Marika, whom the Baron embarrassedly does not recognize at first, whom has spent her entire life in the city, defends it. It is still her enchanted city. The same as the Baron is still her enchanted childhood love. The same as Marika, unbeknownst to her, is still the Baron's. Time has altered their appearance, the visual and material reality at work around them, but there are also timeless intrinsic realities that lie beneath all of the metaphysical veils explored with unrelenting nuance in all of Krasnohorke's work, with love now being identified as existence's most indestructible reality and ultimately its most important. Morosely wandering along train tracks outside the town, pondering these things, potentially the same tracks going under the bridge on which Corrin was mugged and more and more, sending him to America. Potentially the same tracks along which Velusca ran to escape in the melancholy of resistance before being institutionalized. And potentially the same tracks near the same estates that bear the Vinkheim family name and where the young Esty made her final retreat from reality and waited on her guardian angels in Satan Tango. The aging silver-haired baron, Ancrasna Horke, arrives at this final realization near the end of the second third of the novel and pauses to articulate that he must return to his beloved Marika, apologize for not recognizing her, apologize for his absence and the uselessness of his life the last 40 years, tell her she is beautiful, and tell her he loves her. He turns abruptly to return to town to do just that and never sees the train coming in the opposite direction. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. With the character of the professor having exited stage left in the first third of the novel, and the character of the baron now dead at the end of the second third of the novel, the philosophical and literary work of the Kresnohorke quadrilogy is now complete, and kresna can spend the last third of Baron Benkheim's homecoming, giving the audience what they always tuned in for with kresna since the moment Fataki, quote-unquote, woke to hear bells on his shabby collective farm back in 1985 in Satan Tango. The apocalypse. The end of the farm, the end of the town, the end of the train station the end of the novel, the end of the quadrilogy, the end of the world. Not long after the baron is buried, to actually sincere mourning, the chief editor of the city's local newspaper, who pumped up the local townsfolk with tabloid hyperbole about the baron's non-existent wealth, his return would bequeath on them, receives an anonymous letter to the editor whose content and eloquence alarms him so much that he gathers the town's dignitaries and reads it aloud. Who wrote it? The misanthropic doctor in Satan Tango, who only observed the world around him? The powerless mister Esther in the melancholy resistance alone in his study? Was it a letter mailed from New York City by the late Gheorghe Koren now only recently arriving? Maybe it was written by the baron himself before his fateful walk along the railroad tracks. Regardless, the letter strikes right at the failed heart of the town, and deeper still, right at the perceived failures of modern Hungary itself. Seeing that Hungary only escaped the local communist exploitations of the Eremaeuses and Mrs. Esters of the world, seen in Satan Tang on the Melancholy of Resistance, and its own maddening post-communist transformation seen in War and War, to now overseeing a system in which the previously hunted, i.e. the townsfolk, have become the hunters, preying on the mentally ill, the elderly, and the stateless alike as a rule, the author of the letter blames the Hungarian mind and heart themselves. To be Hungarian, it reads, is not to belong to a people, but instead it's an illness, an incurable, frightening disease, a misfortune of epidemic proportions that could overcome every single observer with nausea. Where outsiders like myself see nonlinear brilliance in the Hungarian mind, the anonymous author of the letter only sees spinelessness, two-facedness, quote, lying and rootlessness, because after you've exploited somebody, you do the same thing, namely, you throw them away, end quote. Sequence is that along with most of the novel, Krasnohorke himself hoped would give rise to a new realism that reflects on poverty, and to which the chief editor of the local newspaper's own self congratulations in having the guts to publish a letter this inviscerating to Hungarian society ironically eclipses any serious reflection on his part on the actual contents of the letter itself, which serves as a national critique in and of itself. In the end, the end comes in that perfect fusion of starkly biblical and surreally absurd that only Krasnohorky himself can pull off with any credibility. The town awakens one morning to an Old Testament-style plague of gigantic pigs wheel brown toads covering every nook and cranny in the city and oozing gaseous, yellow as fluid from their bodies at times, made more disgusting when accidentally stepped on by the townsfolk. In the center of the town, the local police captain, harkening back to the security captain of Satan Tango, the hand that pulled all of Hungary's pre-communist, communist, and post-communist strings, sends his staff home, now completely useless in a town paralyzed by amphibians and quarantine, and sits reflecting on what he could have done had he the power the state once afforded him. He sits at his desk in a sterile office, lights a cigarette, and the fumes from the millions upon millions of toads covering the town ignite, vaporizing it, the train station, the bridge, the surrounding forest, covering the ruins of old communist-era collective farms, the police chief's office, and the police chief himself, completely out of existence. And with that, the novel and the quadrilogy ends. In the epilogue, however, as the state's authorities from the capital city later inventory all that no longer exists in the town, the following person isn't listed as destroyed, but as missing the Baron's beloved Marika. In the final critical analysis of the creative whole of Satan Tango, The Melancholy of Resistance, War and War, and Baron Van Homecoming, is considered by Krasnohorke himself to be his one book, this subtle footnote buried in its epilogue serves, to this reviewer at least, as the denouement for the quadrilogy's entire dramatic structure. Looking past all the rotting collective farms, rioting cities, manuscript madness, and doomed playboys of Krasnoy work, lies what Susan Sontag called the Hungarian master of the apocalypse. An author and his characters search for something deeper than the reality in which they currently reside. An unveiling of the deeper truth behind that reality in an attempt to understand it, but more importantly to escape it. All tried, but only Marika succeeded. Love, in the end of the series, and as Lozno krasno states at the end of his interview on today's Read and Succeed, did what no other krasno character was ever capable of doing. Love, quote, found a way out, even from the apocalypse. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. This next clip we are going to play is from an interview that Lawson Cross Jorge gave at City Lights Booksellers and Publishers in San Francisco, California in 2012 while doing press for New Directions Publishing. City Lights actually plays a huge role in American literature, and you can hear during the introduction the name of Lawrence Monsato Ferlinghetti mentioned. A little history lesson connecting all of the above. Mr. Ferlinghetti, who's actually still alive at age 101, is a poet, painter, and activist and co-founder of City Lights Booksellers and Publishers in the Bay Area back during the beat generation of the 1950s. And in 1957, City Lights was the first bookstore to publish and sell a 1955 poem by Jewish-American poet Allen Ginsberg entitled Howl. Some of our listeners may have read or listened to Hell before, but for those that haven't, it's utterly obscene, was utterly shocking at the time it was written and published. And it's also exquisitely crafted poetry and wordsmithing, and in 2020 AD could probably be considered borderline prophetic, even to a button-down church-going civil servant such as myself. And it landed Mr. Ferligetti in jail, launching a case in the California State Superior Court about free speech and artistic expression, and launching the career of Mr. Ginsburg. As previously noted in Episode 7 of Read and Succeed, reviewing War and War, when Mr. Krasnohorke traveled to New York City in the late 1990s to complete that text, he actually stayed with Mr. Ginsburg in his East Village apartment. So there are a lot of subtle literary connections in this interview. The interviewer is Ecuadorian writer Mauro Javier Cardenas, winner of the San Francisco Foundation's Joseph Henry Jackson Award for Young Californian Writers in 2015, and was recognized as one of the Bogota 39 in 2017, which recognized Latin America's premier literary talent under the age of 39. An excellent interview, albeit the sound quality is a little spotty in places, covering a wide range of topics, and one I feel is appropriate for the last episode in this Read, Succeed series on Lesnar, Cros, and Jorge because it is his only English interview to date where he openly discusses the relationship between the first three texts we've reviewed in this series, Satan Tango, The Melancholy of Resistance, and War and War. Kresna Orke has always discusses the influence of the great Eastern European masters and philosophers in his work, namely Dostoevsky and Nietzsche, his creative relationship with Hungarian film director Béla Tarr, and some of the challenges of translating literature into visual symbolism. Mr. preference for the long, never-ending monologue versus a short, always-ending dialogue. And lastly, the most surprising revelation about what truly underwrites the loneliness inherent in, in all of his novels, him being in love, and how, as we stated in our review, Krasnay-Horke's novels were designed to provide love and the reader a way out. Fascinating conversation and a fitting into to this four-episode series. Learn more about City Lights booksellers and publishers at citylights.com. Learn more about Marrow Javier Cardenas at MerylJavierCardenas.com. Learn more about Laszlo Krasnohorke at Krasnohorke.hu. Thanks for staying with us in this series, and enjoy. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Welcome to City Lights. This is truly an
1: auspicious literary moment, if there ever was one, both for City Lights and for the San Francisco Bay Area. It is a great honor and a pleasure to be able to host an evening for Laszlo Krasnohorke. I'd like to take a second to... Thank New Directions Books. Very, very grateful for their help in bringing László out to us. I also take the moment to really acknowledge James Lawson. Founder of New Directions, whose vision and legacy has had a sweeping effect on the world of letters. And we feel a very, very strong kinship to New Directions. And after all, they published Lawrence Ferlinghetti from very, very early on. We share a view and commitment to literary life that runs very, very parallel. So our heartfelt thanks go out to them and a great thanks to all their efforts. We have an author in our midst tonight who we feel extremely strongly about here at City Lights. His work is of major significance to the literary world, both nationally and internationally. His writing embodies all of the qualities that we value the highest here at City Lights. It is challenging, it is complex, it is exquisitely crafted, it is uncompromising in its vision. At times, it can be difficult, it can be ironic, always darkly humorous, but in the end, always worth the candle. Laszlo Krasnokoraj is the author of seven epic novels, four of them beautifully translated into the English by George Tsirtis. These include The Melancholy of Resistance, War and War, and the infamous Satan Tango. He's also written a collection of short stories titled Relations of Race. His work has been translated into numerous languages, including in English from New Directions, in the French from Gallimard. He's also been published in Spanish, German, Polish, Czech, Hebrew, and many other languages. He's the recipient of numerous literary prizes, including the German Best in List Prize, which is for the best literary work of the year. This was for Melancholy of Resistance. Also, the Kosuth Prize, which is regarded as one of the most prestigious awards in the Hungarian state. He's the recipient of a DAAD Fellowship. And in 2008, he was the S. Fisher Guest Professor at the Free University of Berlin. Since 1985, Mr. Krasnoparkaia has developed a working relationship and a very, very deep friendship with the renowned filmmaker Ella Tarr. Tar's films are almost exclusively based on Mr. Krasnoparkaia's works. These include the films Satan Tango and Workmeister Harmonies. His collaboration with Mr. Tarr continues to this day. Mr. Krasnophekai writes his screenplays and assists the director in all the important aspects of his filmmaking. I'd like to take a second too to kind of point out another kind of deeper spiritual connection that, that City Lights has with him. And While completing the novel War and War, Mr. Krasnophekai resided for some time in Allen Ginsberg's apartment in New York City. And Allen's friendship and advice really was very helpful in bringing that book to life. So while in San Francisco, so Mr. has has spent time with Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and Ferlinghetti, of course, is a huge supporter of his work. So there's a very deep connection here. Mr. will be joined tonight by the SEOist and critic Mauro Javier Cardenas. Mr. Cardenas' work has appeared in The Antioch Review, The Bomb Blog, Witness Magazine, Guernica, The San Francisco Chronicle, and The Quarterly Conversation. So we're going to begin the evening with them in conversation. So please let's give him a welcome
0: last Javier Cardenas.
2: <laughs> so first question I'm gonna put out there is yeah. there's a, a figure that recurs in your novels. We have Exika in Satan Tango, we have Valushka in the Blancoli of Resistance, we have Corrin in War and War. These are characters that are very different from one another, obviously. But they share an affinity in that they are not of this world, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about that character and what it means in, in, in the context
3: of your work. These kind of innocent characters and what function as Let
0: us not. Lars Good
3: afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for your for your coming. Actually, here I should say something about the meaning of sacrifice something like that, because these three persons, these three characters in these three novels are really victims of this world. That means uh, absolutely not that they are not a part of this, this world, but they are part not only of this world. Actually, this kind of characters like Eshtike, from the Saturn Temple and Valushka from the Melancholy of Resistance and Korin from the War and the War. These kind of characters are all money, we paid for our compromise lives the dare sacrifice. Actually, this is a main tradition of human history because if you think of the Russian literature in the nineteenth century, if you think of Dostoevsky, how many wonderful characters we can find from this kind of victims, and I joined also to this tradition with these persons because we cannot pay enough for our life with these victims, and perhaps this is a big machinery, this is a big circle, and this is a big repetition. We live between different compromises and under different small or bigger punishments, but actually. This kind of very, very sensitive figure, these victims are really sacrificed. sacrifice. It's impossible to forget this kind of human beings like Eshtika or Varushka. And perhaps, I hope that we cannot forget them. It reminds me of what you are saying a little bit
2: about the, the machinery in the Tween Horse Bellatars movie uh, that was based uh, on a short story of yours. And there's a moment in Tween Horse, you have to give the crowd a little background, in Tween Horse there's a the father and a daughter in, in a very remote place and they're alone for most of the movie. And then there's a point in the middle of the movie where there's a horse carriage that comes in with lots of people on it and like they're partying and having a good time. And, they're incredibly scary, and they remind me a bit of this machinery. this this sort of, is there an apocalyptic vision that, in
3: such a quiet movie, becomes terrifying. Talk a little about that image, and what it means to you. Our last movie, The Turing Horse, is really our last message, It Vela, for all readers and, and, uh, and friends who read and who go to the cinema yet. And that was actually an actually accidental. In the time of uh, a man from London, in the middle of a shooting, that was a big collapse, financial and uh, collapse, and it seemed like we cannot, we cannot finish this film, and Bela was absolutely on the floor. And like so many times, his wife came to me and asked me for something, what I asked, but I, I knew uh, what is my task now namely, something to write for Bela. And I wrote a script alone, and that was The Turing Horse, because I remembered that from the early 90s, perhaps, 91 or 92, I wrote a very small essay about a scene of the life of Friedrich Nietzsche, 1883, perhaps, something very symbolic happened with Nietzsche in Turin. Perhaps you know the story, it was the, the symbolic uh, date. And after that, Nietzsche fell out uh, in madness. And the story was on the street, the following. Uh, a horse was beaten very much, and Nietzsche walked on the street, and he told this scene, and although <coughs> he wrote in his life only about the question and answer that we have to be free of the solidarity with the uh, defeated uh, beings. But in Turin happened something different and very symbolic also for us and for every Nietzsche people. Nietzsche went not to the man who beat the horse. Nietzsche went to the horse and he began crying. And we knew this story in Europe and perhaps here also. And everybody Bill dealt with Nietzsche after this symbolic scene. But nobody asked what happened with the horse after this story. I was very curious what happened with the horse and about this question I the small essay. And from small essay I wrote this screen for Bela and Bela was really very really satisfied story but uh, we never thought that uh, we will make a film from this scene that was some therapy for Bela and after that we could continue the the shooting of the man from London and uh, it it seemed like so that uh, we can uh, continue our uh, collaboration and after a while, Bela called me and asked me, do you have some mood to make a new film? No, I answered. That was always my answer, because I don't like very much the movie making, the process. Bela defended me always, but he couldn't enough. <laughs> and I was always very afraid of the people there. who we were absolutely not interested in the art or the message, only the money, and what can we drink now. That was an early question, and actually only Bela, Bela's wife, and me. We were three who had interested in this kind of film which we did, and Bela called me. It was always the same. I had to convince me that this new film that we should make, again, could miss from the world, and it was not a, simply a task for Bela. To convince me but the last argument by Bela was in that case that if you have me probably truly not this film will be all last and you can say anything that's okay in this case bit pleasure <laughs> <laughs> and the film uh, is really very faithful to the script actually there is a big monologue in the middle of the film from a neighbor and that was a little bit Long in the script, and of course, we cut it with monologue, but not enough. I think so. (laughs) Not enough. This is a little bit too long. Billa is absolutely satisfied with this monologue. Me too, only a little bit, the written is a little bit problematic for me, but it's absolutely no problem. And this is really our last movie. Billa, this is not only a trick, I hope. Uh, and he organizes now a film school in the former Yugoslavian area and I think so this is the best way because the Julian horse is a fear about the Apocalypse and after the Apocalypse to make a new film,
4: <laughs>
3: I hope this is what I really, really all last awesome.
0: For those just joining us, this is a 2012 interview between 2019 National Book Award winner for Translated Literature, Las Nacros de Jorge, and Ecuadorian writer Mauro Javier Cardenas at City Lights Booksellers and Publishers in San Francisco, California. To download this episode of Reading Succeed, please visit readingsucceed.net.
2: The monologue in Horace works in a very similar way that it works in War and War and also in El Ultimo Lobo, a short story that he wrote, and the neighbor comes in and he talks about how the good have led the bad win and he goes on for a long time and then the person that is listening to him says ah oh, shut up and in war and war when corin gives his monologues he's mostly giving the monologues to a person that is with his back to him the interpreter's girlfriend and in ultimo Lowa as well the the monologue is delivered to the barman who who says Gone and finished. So, uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how monologues work
3: in, in your novels. This is a country where I am a little bit disturbed because I don't believe in the dialogues. And American literature is fantastic. But I don't uh, believe in the dialogues. I, I believe only in the monologue, And that's why this is my only space where I am at home. When two people are in a space, one speaks this monologue, other one, perhaps listen, perhaps <laughs> listen, perhaps he has some interest in this monologue or not, perhaps later in another situation the other one with his or her monologue, hopefully the other person can listen and can understand it The essential we, we have only one sentence actually, we all and we try to find it, and uh, this monologue Sometimes, that's why it's so long, because in the process of the monologue, we are looking for the, this sentence, which we really have, but every person in the world has one very important sentence, and the best way for this sentence, monologue, perhaps, hopefully, there is in the space to listen and the long sentences and, and the monologues
2: that we hear and more and more and in War and War and Melancholy, and Assistance* as well, satan tango. Can you talk a little about the development of the long sentence, the long line in your work? I know that there's been a lot of criticism written, uh, criticism, like literary criticism written about potential influences, but I know you talked about how the long sentence comes for you from the spoken word
3: and also that repetition is very important to you in your sentences, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that yeah what does it mean long sentences yesterday we spoke about a little bit more and i should repeat it. what does it mean long sentences <laughs> if somebody told me or told us this is a long sentence it's always something that It's too long sentences and i think so my sentences are rather unusual than Unusual because there is a very old tradition in the literature that the best form of oath, thinking away uh, monologues is short, clear sentences. And this tradition told us that the dot has a very important meaning. I have another opinion, a different opinion, namely that the short sentences are absolute artificial. And if I listen to people who speak, I always never listen really short sentences with this cutted structure. But in a spoken language, I hear always very long sentences, or what more, only one long sentence, actually. And the comma is much more important for spoken language than the dots, because the dots, this is not under our power that is the judgment of the God, and we are not God. <laughs> uh, I, I'm sure that the that will be used only God, you know, and uh, I haven't
0: courage. For those just joining us, this is a 2012 interview between 2019 National Book Award winner for Translated Literature, Las Nacros de Jorge, and Ecuadorian writer Mauro Javier Cardenas at City Lights Booksellers and Publishers in San Francisco, California. To download this episode of Reading Succeed, please visit readingsucceed.net. I want to
2: talk a little bit about uh, the language of resistance and the way it seems to be, to me as a reader, an evolution in the syntax and the sentences and the... Parentheticals become more frequent, the beautiful parentheticals that we have in there. You allow clichés to come in into the consciousness of the characters quite a bit. And so there's, there's actually
3: quite a bit of humor, in fact. To create a fictive, a literary world in an hour, this is a quite big ambition. And I had this ambition too when I was 18 or 20 years old. And I wanted to write one book, and that was a certain tango, which is a new one now. I want to create really a world, and from this world, you cannot write about a world without humor because the humor is a part of the the world, and and almost every movement, almost every wish, desire, dialogues and monologues have a part, a side, which is very, very ridiculous. Or humor, or, or the the the, the satire, the satiric side of the humor, and uh, it's best to write about the whole side of the humor. The the heroes, the characters, for example, in the Satanic uncle, let you say, i the going book when they wait for Ilymiash because he needs Ilymiash because they need Ilymiash because they need life. This is a scene almost everybody absolute drama. And if you read the book, this scene, and if you read about one character, this character is, in the same time, very ridiculous and
2: very tragic. Yesterday we were talking about, you were saying that you found theatre often to be very boring, and there was some interesting reason why that was the case. I wonder if we could talk about that and how it relates to reality and how it relates to
3: your work as so, well. The set has a very unusual structure because the structure of this novel is a circle forever. And this novel, War and War, this is a very important experiment for me to find a way out from the fiction into the reality and from the reality to the fiction. The War and War is not only a novel, the War and War is a project. And after the book, after the last page of the book, the novel, the story, the War and War Project, continued in the reality.
0: For those just joining us, this is a 2012 interview between 2019 National Book Award winner for translated literature, Lasna de Jorge, and Ecuadorian writer, Mauro Javier Cardenas, at City Lights Booksellers and Publishers in San Francisco, California. To download this episode of Reading Succeed, please visit readingsucceed.net. There's
2: something that cancer. And World War and War, test. So in War War, Corrin finds manuscript, and there's a little bit of debate about whether the manuscript is real or not. And, and I'm not sure if the manuscript is real. Corin does find manuscript, and in the manuscript, it's a story about four four characters that go travel through time, and uh, one of them is Kasar. And Casor says at some point, pure love is resistance, and it is
3: characteristic of lonely people. I wonder if you can talk a little about that sentence. This sentence I wrote when I was in a very deep love with somebody, and the love is short. This sentence stood in my book, I'm mean, a bit disturbed. What can I say now about love, like the poorest the form of the resistance? Because I thought, when I was in deep love, that in the love, the love is the only possibility to be really free. Because if you are really in love, it's absolutely not interest, Not interesting. Nothing is interesting only this feel an absolutely different world. You can bear, actually, the word with love. It's a condition. The real life is almost unbearable. That was my case, and I thought that love, really, the only form of the human being, to show a feeling which is not so animal, you know? because the love was For me, some very spirit, absolutely not something in body. Every other feeling, a normal love. This is a part of our life, okay? But it's the highest level of love. This is a very spiritual. And the freedom and the love were conducted very close to each other. I thought it. But I am now identified. The manuscript that Corinne
2: finds, so we talked about four characters. That travel through time and they seem to be well they don't seem to be they are in places of destruction and crete when there's i think the volcano explodes they're in venice during some wars can we talked a little about how that manuscript came to be and sort of in the novel corin has a hard time or well, he says he tries to understand it doesn't understand that but so you talk a little about how that? the idea of those characters came to be and, and what that means to you, those characters traveling over time through this
3: sort of landscapes of destruction? This manuscript has existed. My fictive hero, Corinne, wondered this, this text. And this text dealt with uh, four angels, four angel-like figures, who wanted to find a uh, place in the world, on the earth, this peace. What is peaceful and this way was uh, absolutely unsuccessful because they found only war after war and my hero of this novel wandered next and he looked for some form how can he find a solution to beware, of this text for it And uh, he was a really naive person, an innocent person, and he believed, after a conversation that the internet, namely an absolute imaginable space, this is undestroyable. This is not possible to destroy, because this is only in the, in the virtual space. And that's why he decides uh, to write and send the internet this text and that was not so easy for him because he was absolutely not a person for whom it is very easy to find the false solution. After this fact, after the existing of this text in the internet, he knew that he couldn't find a way out from these four angels because these four angels in the manuscript wanted actually find a way out from the world, from the real world, and Korean, the main character, wanted the same, to find a way out for them. his last experience was in Zurich, when he wanted to write a word in Hungarian, this is only one word, but in English too, a way out, uh, to write on the surface of the Zurich sea, the lake, but that was also not possible for for, him. And so this is a constantly pain for me to find a way out. I'm writing books, I write it, I wrote books because I'm interested in not the books but uh, I wanted to send you a message that somebody is here who wanted to find a way out for all all of you, all of us. And actually perhaps this is the dance.
0: This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell.
1: friends don't you just love what you're hearing here on forward radio don't you just want more these are the people's airwaves these are your airwaves we need
0: you to get involved Go to forwardradio.org and consider the many ways to put more you in community radio. Whether it's time, talent, or treasure, we need everything you can give to make this radio station happen. At forwardradio.org, you'll find a way to get
1: radioactive with us.
0: That's it for Episode 8 of Read and Succeed in this four-part series. We'll pick it up next episode reviewing the essays of Kresna aficionado, the late American cultural critic Susan Sontag, and lead into her 2020 Pulitzer Prize-winning biography by Benjamin Moser. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Thanks for listening.